Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Forest Brothers Podcast. It is me, your host, Mutsa Chris Daumakufa, joined by my two brothers, once again, Nkosi Ngomezulu and Samson Amp, the chemist. Welcome, brothers, to the new year. I hope you entered 2022 well and fine. And to our listeners as well, welcome to the new year of 2022. I hope you and your families entered the new year well and are ready to embrace the new year with open arms, new opportunities, new adventures to be had, full of life to live. But with that said, let us move forward with the podcast. So this week we'll be talking about Game Week 20 and Game Week 21. I'll start us off with Game Week 20 with my game of the week. But before I get started, I just want my two brothers to say hello real quick. Ngomezulu, please say hello to the, to the audience. Thank you, Mr. Makufa. I would like to say hello to all our listeners out there all around the world. And we're always happy to be here. Happy New Year to all the people. I hope they had a nice festive break as well as uh, New Year's uh, yesterday with their, new, with their families and things like that. And I just hope that everyone that listens to our podcast has a, a prosperous year, given that last year was a, quite a difficult year for many of us. Thank you. I'd also like to say hello and Happy New Year to all our listeners. I hope everyone crossed into the new year happily, and I wish all of you, you know, a prosperous 2022. Um, I know 2021 was a rough year for a lot of people, but yeah, hopefully we have better times ahead. So yeah. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. So first game on the butcher's table here is the Southampton versus Tottenham game that happened on December 28th. As you know, Tottenham is my team. I am a full-fledged Tottenham supporter. And yes, although it can be quite unfortunate at times, I am very proud to support my boys there who play at White Hart Lane. Very interesting game with Southampton. Ended up 1-1. And I will say I was quite disappointed that that game finished as a draw. We could not win against 10 men. And although I've heard the narrative that 10 men are quite hard to beat, especially a team that has good chemistry, such as Southampton does. But I expected Tottenham to come in and do the deed, you know. That was a chance to go, okay, I don't know if we'd have gone above Arsenal, but that was a chance to at least be competitive for top four. So the fact that we came away with a draw was quite disappointing for me. Salisu, with that red card, I don't know what the mandem was thinking, but, you know, he's, he's still young, so he still has more years of experience to gain on his game, but... I hope that when they're there on the training pitch, they are showing the young man the do's and the don'ts of the football pitch because he definitely puts Southampton in a tricky situation. Also, Tottenham should have won that game. That was not an offside for Kane. Kane was in and out. He was, that was, you know, Harry Winks with that over-the-top pass. That was, you know, that was golden. That man should have, that was, that was a goal. And I believe that we were robbed from, so... Hopefully, you know, we need to talk about this at a later date, but VAR is not doing what VAR is supposed to do. Let us win our games, man, you know. Yeah, that's my game. That was my little take, but I'm very impressed by what I'm seeing from Tottenham. Hopefully, we keep not losing games this year, and I hope to see us in the top four. Gomez Zulu, yes? Just on the situation around Harry Kane, I've been hearing a lot of pundits out there speak a lot about Harry Kane and how his body language looks. Um, In your opinion, do you think that he's returning to the cane we know? 
or is the transfer or everything that's happened in the last month still lingering over his head and things like that? Because I think about you as a Spurs supporter, think about all the fantasy players who are considering bringing him to their teams. And Spurs have nice fixtures coming up. Yes, thank you for that. Very good question, Mr. Nkosi there. You know what? I believe that Kane really is coming back to form. You saw in one of these previous games, you know, before, like, you know, when this whole transfer saga did not go down the way he wanted it to go, he was moping around, he was not looking his best self. It didn't look like he wanted to be there. But in the last few weeks, well, let's say like three or four weeks, he's really stepped up. You know, there was even a game this past couple of weekends where, like, you know, he got in a Southampton game, actually, where he was, that was a goal, but he was given his offside. And he didn't like, you know, mope around. He was just like, guys, come on, let's go. Let's do it again. Let's let's get a goal, you know. He was still like amping up his teammates and wanting to win the game. And I think that's a very positive sign. And I think he's getting back to his full best. I'll give him another couple of games. And we should see Harry Kane killing the back of the net once more again. He's, he's still got, you know, a couple of tweaks that he needs to figure out, but Overall, I'm very impressed. Even Human Son, I think he's doing really well. For me, he's always a standout Spurs player. Yeah, I I, I love that kid. Great, great kid. Work. He works hard, and we know when whenever we need a result, he's the one. He's the man we look to. So, thank you to South Korea for producing such a wonderful man, Mr. Samson. Tell us about what your thoughts about Game Twenty. It was a not so interesting game week. You know, midweek it wasn't. You know, nothing too exciting happened. Uh, the most exciting thing for me was seeing Liverpool lose to Leicester, especially because I did not think Leicester were going to win that game just from the beginning. You know, they fielded Wilfred Ndidi and uh, Daniel Amarte at, at centre-back, and that that just looked bad on paper. It, it would look bad anywhere. You know, on FIFA, it looks bad. On Football Manager, it looks bad. Any weird soccer game you you find on the internet, it looks bad. It looks horrible. How they got away with it, I have no idea. But they managed to beat Liverpool because I guess Liverpool right now, you know, maybe it's the, you know, the players who are in and out of the team with COVID. Maybe it's just burnout. Um, you know, Klopp has complained in the past of the many fixtures, even though they did take quite a huge break. You know, took like a week break before you know their EFL game, but we're not going to talk about that. They did have a break, but they still have found it hard in recent times just to get a consistent run of results going. And I was surprised they were unable to score that game. I mean, now granted, they did miss a penalty and and Salah missed an open goal after the penalty and Mane missed a pretty clear opportunity in the second half to score. You know, so it's not like they weren't creating and they weren't anywhere close you know they were just you know they, they really were just unlucky but still surprising to see them lose that game given how they dominated but uh, all in all it's a, it was a great result for Leicester and hopefully uh, Brendan Rodgers can rest a little easier now because he's had a horrible December and hopefully things get better for him. Yeah, uh, you know, I we gave our man Harry, Mr. Rogers, a hard time, you know, in the, in the last podcast. Do you think we've been too harsh on Brendan Rogers, or do we still believe that he could he could do much better? You know, now that Leicester has actually picked up a little bit. 
What do you think? For me, like Rogers is a guy that knows how to set up a team tactically. The biggest challenge that he currently has is having a fully available squad. Because if you looked at that back four, Luke Thomas, Martin, Didi, and I think Castagna, right back, who played very well. If Leicester's first 11 back four, like their original back four played, I don't think he'd be playing any of those four individuals. But the fact that his, his team is crippled by injuries and he the results are not coming because the players are injured. He's got many contractual situations right now with Yuri Tielemans and Playm or not. So there are a lot of moving parts that he has to try and adapt with. I'm a firm believer in Brendan Rodgers that he can certainly turn around because also it also just goes down to the fact that he took, not to be disrespectful or anything, but average players and made them seem very elite up there with the very best or last the past two seasons. And then now I feel like the expectations we have set for them are pretty much very high. Because if, for example, even West Ham, if West Ham were to struggle this year, uh, would have been like, oh, actually, they, they're below their standards. More should be sacked. But just because they finished close to the top four, top five, wherever they were last year. So it's just about balancing the two and seeing how far we can actually go with those teams and just understand what they're trying to do, given their available resources that they currently have. Yeah, you bring up something really interesting there. I, I just wanted to say, because, you know, we just mentioned that Leicester is riddled with injuries and he has to make makeshift teams and you know so right now in the media we see our other two managers club and Tuchel you know complaining about the intensity of these games but then we see other managers who are facing similar situations but they keep cracking on you know I I don't think I've heard Rogers really gone on air and complain about injuries and COVID and tight fixture schedules and we can't win the title, even though, you know, they probably can't. But still, you know, so is a manager's like Rogers what we should be looking at? Or should we give more, lend, should we lend our ears more to Klopp and Tuchel, who seem to be throwing tantrums in the media every week? I would say that uh, the those managers, yes and no, it's justified what they're doing because they know what's at stake. For them, they want to win the title this year. Man City has dominated the league year in and year out, but this year they want to win the title. That's why I feel like what they're saying is justified on their part. But then, like, even if, like, for example, Rogers was to be like, I want the five subs, you look at his bench, he probably has three kids from the academy to choose from. So to him, like, even if he were to complain, it wouldn't really change much. And even, like, though he'd be like, oh, actually, uh, let's move the fixtures around the team would be overloaded in a different part of the season. The team will be overloaded at one point in time. And for unfortunately for him and for all the other managers, it's right now. You just have to play through the pain, understand that it happens, and then just move on to your next game and your next segment. Just train, play, train, play. There's really nothing that managers can do, actually. Another thing I would say is that, you know, Premier League is the toughest league to coach in, in the world. And I think... When you hear Tuchel and Klopp to, um, complain about fixtures, it's it's a tactic, you know. It's it's a skill that they have developed over time, as top managers in their jobs, to deflect pressure off off their team when things aren't going so well. For example, Tuchel has had a problem with his midfield balance, below par performances from players like Saul, Alonso, Jorginho, uh, Lukaku has been in and out of the team. 
these are problems that would be attacked more if he didn't have, you know, the shield of too many fixtures or COVID right there, right? That kind of lessens the blow. Same with Klopp. Klopp has had, you know, they have scored a lot of goals this year, but they've also conceded a lot of goals and they've conceded a a lot of sloppy goals. And even today, they were in control of, of the game against Chelsea, but they somehow let that go. And blaming the fixtures and blaming tired players is one way to counter this. And it's something managers have done, especially managers in the top jobs, something they've done for years and something they will continue to do because, well, you know, it's just another way to deflect pressure and reduce the pressure on the players, on the coaching staff, and kind of give yourself a little more, a little more time to figure things out. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised as soon as you see the fixtures starting to turn for these managers, you will hear less talk about fixtures um, and they'll talk about, you know, something else, you know, because that's just the way it goes. But then I just have a question about that. So if the leader of your squad, you know, the whole team, the face, let's say Klopp is out there saying, oh, my players are tired. Oh, it's too tight. Injuries. And then you have your players in the, the actual people who are playing every weekend and week out. Does that do something to their psyche as as players? Because, okay, if we look at Liverpool and Chelsea right now, right, we can all agree that their form has taken a bit of a dip. Can we, you know, credit that a little bit to the fact that Tuchel and Klopp are the most outspoken managers saying that there's too much playing time, there's, you know, COVID, we need five subs, or people are tired. Is there a mental... Does that do something to the players mentally? And, you know, because... You need, your, you need your leader, right, to stand up there and say, it's tight, but we can handle it. Or, you know, what, what, where's the balance? Or does that matter at all? Nkosi? It's, uh, I think, just to allude to what Samson was saying just like a minute or two ago, it's uh, a siege mentality by the elite managers and that they deflect all the pressure away from the players and onto themselves to be like, I have to stand up for my team. If I don't don't stand up for my players, who's going to stand up for them? As the face of the club, who am I who's going to stand up for the players if I don't do it, essentially? So that's why I feel like they do it. And also, you have to keep in mind that these coaches speak to the fitness coaches. They speak to people in the background, the people that work with the players day in and day out, the assistant coaches, and they look at the body overall. They look at the data. They look at the numbers on like how fit a player is. To be able to play so they can understand a, qu- a quick turnaround because you have to think about it you play some teams played on wednesday and they played today this on tuesday they played saturday where was the rest in between because again what we have to keep in mind is that a day in the at the at the highest level for example if you play on a tuesday on the wednesday is a rest day for everyone so no one's training so thursday and friday you can't even like as a coach you can't even train with the players because you have to prepare for the next game. You're working on tactics specific for the next game. Saturday, you're either traveling or you're match day. So there's no time. So basically, these coaches want to get time on the training ground because you have to keep in mind, for example, Klopp and Tuchel are, are coaches, essentially. They want to be at the training ground, setting up cones, setting up everything, setting up training drills for teams to for their teams to actually play better, like defend better. That's why I feel like Chelsea, like well, for example, Chelsea right now are struggling right now defensively because Tuchel, those same principles that he instilled when at the beginning of the season, when he had time to work with the players at training, 
He doesn't have time to do that now. That's why the team keeps on conceding game in and game out. So those, I think that that's like the biggest piece that is just missing right now between between like the different teams that exist in the APL. Another thing I would also say, you know, and don't think just because the managers are saying, oh, the fixtures are the problem, that they are not screaming at their players when they get things wrong. You know, and you can kind of see this in some of the actions they take, uh, like in the beginning of the season. I'm not sure if you noticed, but De Bruyne didn't play a lot of games. Now, he was struggling from COVID, actually. You know, he mentioned in an interview afterwards that he had trouble breathing and even, you know, like running like 10 meters had become so difficult for him. But he was dropped from the team. I'd guarantee you behind the scenes, every every game uh, he underperformed, he was being screamed at by, by Guardiola intensely. But at the end of the day, Guardiola comes out and says to the press, don't worry, it's COVID, he's struggling. We've had injuries, whatever, whatever. It's the same thing Liverpool and Chelsea. That's what they're going to do. You will never hear Tuchel say anything bad about Alonso like, or, or Jorginho uh, because, again, you want to protect your players. You want to keep the group together. If you want to sell a, a particular player, you want to keep their value high so you're not going to bash them publicly. So all that kind of goes into it. But just know, if you see someone do something insanely dumb on the pitch, or someone doesn't look like they're conditioned right. Or, you know, something just goes wrong. Because at the end of the day, the 11 players who are sent out are prepared to go out there, right? You see them in the warm-up drills. They look fine. They're wearing the vests, you know, like the performance vests. So the, the fitness team is, has kept track of them. And they know where they are, where they are, you know, like physically. And they've okayed those 11 players to go out. So physically... Whoever's playing is most likely okay to play. They're good. So physically, they're fine. And at the end of the day, what you see on the pitch is, on, is about their performances and how they react in those vital moments and the decisions they make. So I have no doubt in my mind that if you see mistakes on the pitch, even though the manager might come out and say, oh, you know, it's COVID, it's injuries, it's whatever, they know at the end of the day, it's that guy. If Giorgino gives away a pen, it's Giorgino who gives away a pen. He made a dumb decision. It happens. And he's going to get screamed at for it at the end of the game. But the manager is always going to protect his guys because that's just what you do in this business. So, yeah, I think the players get it. And, you know, they'll take what the manager says in the press conferences with a pinch of salt. Something else that happened midweek that I thought was kind of interesting. A new story came out about Romelu Lukaku. Um, I know, I know. Of course, he's going to find this one interesting. He's going to want to dive deep into this. But in a pre-recorded interview, Lukaku did this interview a few weeks ago with Sky Italia. He spoke about this was back when he was out of the team, suffering from COVID, and he mentioned that he was unhappy with the system at Chelsea. The direct quotes are: "Physically, I am fine, but I am not happy with the situation at Chelsea. Tuchel has chosen to play with another system." I won't give up. I will be professional. I am not happy with the situation, but I am professional and I can't give up now. These comments came out uh, midweek, I believe Thursday or Wednesday, and the British media ran with it. I was seeing headlines like Lukaku wants to leave. He wants to go back to Italy. He's ungrateful. A hundred million of the Queen's finest for this. <laughs> and I was seeing all sorts of headlines. And 
you know, before getting into it much more myself, I just want to hear what is my man Nkosi's thoughts on the whole Lukaku situation? Very interesting story in that the news story broke right before the weekend, before the big game against Liverpool. And then Tuchel was faced with a very big decision on whether to drop him from the matchday squad or to keep him and try and speak to him in the background and then find a perfect medium between the two. So it's a, it's a, it's a very challenging one in that right now, why wasn't this? So my question then becomes like to people releasing these stories, why wasn't this story released when you were sitting on the bench and not playing? When we didn't understand what he wanted to do, because I don't understand, understand that Lukaku is a top striker. We signed him for 100 million. He's supposed to come in. He's supposed to just start immediately. But then to get the best out of a player, if you sign him and you have a set way of playing, he needs to come in, no matter how good he is, he needs to come in for a period of time, sit on the bench, watch how you play, and get an understanding of your system before you throw him into the deep end. You can't just say to a young child there in grade R or something that they should just wake up one day there in November, haven't been to school the whole year, and go take an examination. Of course, you will fail the examination. But then those comments, for them to come out the way they did, we haven't received the full transcript as yet of what was said, but my understanding is that from what Tuchel said and what the club said is that they've spoken to Romelu uh, behind closed doors, and they've discussed the situation. Tuko was very upset about the quotes because from what I understand, he did quote him and say, Tuko, I don't like the way Tuko has been playing me or not playing me at all. And that really irked the manager. And then I'd say it's also like a power struggle now because him being dropped today was a true sign of intent that no one is bigger than the club. That was Tuchel's stance today. It could have backfired. It could have, it could have worked. Uh, it's up for debate. That's beyond, my, that's beyond my knowledge. I don't know if it's really that big because from what I'm hearing is that they will have another discussion tomorrow and the, in this upcoming week. I know there won't be any EPL games up until the 15th when they play Man City and we'll need to see whether the situation will be resolved or there'll still be a rift there with, with Romelu. Yeah, I think... I think for me, like the biggest one is that they just need to sit down, discuss it, move forward, and just get a get a basis on like how to take this forward. Because I like the I like the quote of "I'm gonna be professional about it." Shouldn't you shouldn't just be happy with with some comfortability, but you should just be very serious about it. Uh, Mr. Mutsa, uh, what do you have to say about Mr. RL Nine? <laughs> so you know, I was very shocked when I when I when I heard about this break story because immediately after he did that interview, right? Because it was three weeks ago, he scored against Villa and Brighton. So he scored two goals and he was in form, right? And then this story broke. So I, you know, there is maybe some fishiness into how or why the story is breaking now. But also, it begs me to wonder: like, doesn't Lukaku have a PR team, or doesn't he have somebody? who knows about that interview that happened three weeks ago. Why would, you know, they just, like, was it a leak? Like, I just don't understand how that can still come out because if he knows he, what he said three weeks ago and he's playing well, why not go back to the reporter and talk to him? Like, yo, listen, let's put that back in the vault. We don't want to say that anymore, you know? So I wonder if there's still some onus here on Lukaku because why did let it run still? Like, why is it still in the, 
you know, in the atmosphere. And secondly, Lukaku, you know, when he left Inter, he was busy talking about how going back to Chelsea was his dream and he wanted to come back and score goals and all this and that, you know. So for him now to say he's unhappy, I don't know. I just, I, to me, it's it's very strange. It just baffles me quite a bit because I thought that's where he would be happy. You know, there was a whole Instagram video and whatnot, whatnot, whatnot. And he played well in the first five games and he's only sat out like, what, four games? So... I don't know if he's just being a crybaby about the system or, you know, because we don't hear Verna, or maybe it's an English thing, who knows. But we don't hear Verna crying on in the media about, oh, I'm not playing, or all this or all that. You know, Verna's quiet. You know, he's not really lambasting anyone or, you know, heading at Tuchel, talking about Tuchel, why not playing, the system doesn't work for me. He's very quiet, you know. Maybe it's Havertz keeping him under, you know, hush-hush. But who knows? Uh, Samson, what do you think? I think it's an issue of uh, something being lost in translation. So he did the interview in Italian. Uh, he did it with Sky Italia in Italy. But I was watching uh, ESPN FC with, with Gab McCarty, and he mentioned that if you heard you know, the interview as an Italian, you know, knowing Italian, it sounds a lot different than it does after it's translated to English. Obviously, the words I would like to go back to Inter one day are still, you know, those are still the words he said. But it sounds, in Italian, from what I understand, it sounds more as a guy who is trying to say that he really liked his time in Italy and he would like to go back if the opportunity, you know, sometime in the future, if the opportunity, you know, it's he's not trying to diss Chelsea. He's not trying to say, I want to go now. He's not trying to initiate a move necessarily it was more of just trying to express his love for inter milan which i think which i feel is entitled to do but i think the issue is british media is a whole different beast and you know just not the same as italian media so when the british media just heard you know lukaku loves inter milan and he wants to go back that's all they heard he wants to go back he's unhappy you know, and again, he says you have, to, you have to take everything in context, right? You know, when he said he was unhappy with the system and he wasn't, he was unhappy with his playing time. Well, I can't speak to the part where he says he's unhappy about the system, but unhappy with the playing time, he had just come back from COVID and he wasn't being selected. That's a fair response from a player, I feel. You know, because when if you feel you're healthy, you want to play, right? And I, I, I understand that on some level, we can argue about, you know, whether he had a right to say it or not and how that looks. But I felt like, I feel like he has a right to say that I, I want to play, you know, and I feel like a coach would be happy to see, you know, a player, you know, saying, yeah, I want to play. I, I want to be competitive. I want to be out there. But also as a coach, you know, we've seen players with COVID or players who've had COVID struggle when they come back because, Football is a very demanding sport. You run a lot more than in most sports. And COVID really impacts your lungs after you get it, you know, and weeks after you get it, it still impacts your lungs. So you can understand Tuchel's position as well. I just think, you know, it's a whole lot of issues kind of just hitting each other all at the same time. You know, it's a translation issue. It's the timing of the article. It's... Tuchel and Lukaku maybe not being on the same page all the time, I guess, you know, in terms of the system and 
maybe Lukaku wants to be accommodated differently. You know, he played in a in a front two at Inter. Maybe that's what he wants here. We don't we don't know all the details, but I feel it's more than just Lukaku wanting to leave or him being unhappy. I think you know, it's a lot more things. Um, and I think you know, like Nkosi said, you know, they've gone to talking, and I'm sure they'll probably resolve it pretty soon. Nkosi, you you had something to say. Yeah, you know, like with with this entire situation being as we speak right now, uh, on the second of January, very delicate. Uh, there's not a lot of that's been said. It's just besides we'll talk behind closed doors. I think for me, like as all three of us have mentioned today, it's about the timing of like when it was released, because the English or the Italian media or whatever outlet uh, published the story publishes at the time when they see the numbers of like when it's going to get the full effect of what's actually supposed to happen. Because I can tell you right now, the media is not dropping the story if Lukaku is sitting on the bench and the team is doing well. That story is not coming out. When's it going to come out? When he starts coming on week in and week out, starting to score goals back to back, ahead of a big game, perfect timing, they drop it. Why wasn't it dropped the week after it happened? Why wasn't it dropped 10 days after it happened? So those kind of things play into the narrative of just the EPL in itself and just the sports media and just trying to see like when the the biggest viewership will come through for a story like this, especially like just before a big game. Because effectively what that does is that when you hear the story come out on Thursday or Friday, whatever day it was, now people will have something... People that were not interested in watching Chelsea Liverpool on Sunday will now be interested in opening the game on Sunday to see if Lukaku either will be in the team or it will be starting or if he'll be in the stadium. Because most of the time when something like this happens, half of the time the media is just panning on to what that specific controversial individual is doing, whether he's on the field or he's on the bench or he's somewhere in the stadium. So yeah, that's just that's just my idea on like what pretty much is happening there, Mister Mister Mutsa. I don't know. This is it's a very big story. We can just go on for days and days about it and just and just never know what's actually happening with these players. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, that's very true. It's just that like my last two cents was just the fact that in as much as we can blame the media, no one put a gun to Lukaku's head and told him to say those things. You know, if he just kept quiet, that's it. You know, why Why is he crying on in Italy about this? Translation, English, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, the man said what he had to say. The man said what he said. And I suppose at the end of the day, you have to pay for those repercussions. So, I mean, that's that's my own little two cents about it. Now on to more positive things that happen on the field. So the Chelsea-Liverpool game, 2-2 today. Ah, oh, what a brilliant game, you know. That game emphasized why we watch the EPL year in and year out. That was that was some great stuff there. That was a good advertisement of like what the English Premier League provides and why people say it's the best and the biggest league in the world. Today it was a clash of heavyweights. Uh, my friend uh, Jurgen Klopp wasn't there on the bench. Uh, his assistant was there, but you could see the two teams were up for it. Chelsea started like a house on fire. Pulisic got a chance there through. Couldn't take it. The young young boy Kelleher, uh, as a person who understands what happens in the goalkeepers' union, to come on in such a big game, such a big time, uh, 
Uh, he, I think, I think he stepped up today. His defense may have let him down a couple of times for the other goals, but I think for the most part he did well. Just, just going to the game, like just basically looking at it from a tactical standpoint. Chelsea played the usual three four three. Liverpool played their usual four three three. So what essentially happened today was that Chelsea had one less player in the midfield, but with having one less player in the midfield, having Kovacic and Kante who are both essentially runners, box-to-box mids, they were able to cover the distance for a third person. So you couldn't see that there were one man extra, one man short, I mean, in the midfield. So that's why they were able to manage the game and play from there. And what Chelsea were good at was exploiting the spaces where Liverpool were leaving them. Because the spaces where they were today were in behind Trent and in behind Simikas. From what I watched when I was watching the game, I could see that on that switch ball into that channel, into those full backs channels, was always on for a chance. Because I'm pretty sure if Chelsea would have been a bit more clinical, Havertz, Pulisic, I don't think Mason got a chance. But if those two players had been more clinical, I think Chelsea would have walked away with three points. But as I said, like great advertisement for the Premier League. Going to the Liverpool side, the bit shell shocked there at the beginning. I think maybe not having their manager on the bench really did affect them because uh you know when Klopp is there he can bring the energy out of you you can run in that extra 10 yards just because he's there but the fact that he wasn't there felt like that affected the players a little bit the chance though the first goal the goal they got the first goal they got Mane scored that was a mistake by Trevor Chalobah Trevor Chalobah has done well this season but maybe yeah as I think the occasion got to him like because he's still a young player he's grateful for the opportunity maybe that point in time when he made that mistake he didn't think about it as much so honestly I think at that point he should have just cleared it gone for a throw in then you would have just been in position to defend and then the second goal that Mo Salah scored Mo Salah is uh I think he's gonna win PFA play of the year uh, hands down he I think he's got it barring an injury at AFCON or anything and he comes back uh not the same person but I think he'll win the award uh, I'm very critical of Alonso and I've been telling people, uh, I think now they can finally see it in terms of like a defensive standpoint. Like he didn't showcase a defender's qualities there. Because uh, I had a couple of discussions with the, with the fellas today about what essentially happened there. And my opinion was that if you, st- if you catch up with an attacker as a defender and he squares you up one-on-one, he can't just run past you. He can just like not even do skills. Just waltz past you and score you're a defender put an attack you know if you put an attack and it was a penalty i would have understood but he did neither he just he just let him through and then try to pull him which made no sense to me but then i like the fighting spirit to, from chelsea to to fight back uh Kovacic scored i think probably it's up there for goal of the season i don't know if he meant it or he was just making sure that liverpool don't get the ball back it was, it, I think this game just had it all, man. It had it all from the first seven seconds. Mane, we can argue, red card there on a Aspilicueta. We've seen some of those given. Uh, I don't know. To me, it was a red card, but people say it was an orange card. Who knows? You know, uh, it's very it's very interesting, that one, with, with those players. But uh, grateful for Pulisic to finally get on the score sheet, rectify his earlier mistake, put it away, come back into the game. We're now set, but then like injuries and fatigue started to kick in second half. You could see the quality dropped. We weren't actually, both teams weren't actually at the same level in terms of like their style of play. 
Uh, everyone was just trying to breathe. That's why I felt like they brought on Jorginho in the midfield there to try and slow things down so that everyone could breathe. But all in all, a great spectacle. I think both gentlemen can agree with me there and just, and just say like, yo, what a game, man. You know, as I was watching that game, I realized that Jorginho wasn't in and Chelsea had a sort of fluidity to them. You know, there wasn't any of that, you know, side side to side pass that Jorginho loves doing. So do you think that the way Chelsea were playing today was a direct result of Jorginho being on the bench? Today, they looked very progressive. And, you know, it was actually exciting football for once. I, you know me, you know me, I always hit on Chelsea. That's my, that's my MO, you know, I'm a Chelsea hater. That's what I do. But I was quite impressed with, you know, just the way that, the tenacity of it, you know? So my question is, is that because Jorginho wasn't in the squad? Does Jorginho hold that kind of play back? Or was Chelsea just on some other type of energy today? 90%, I'd say it was Jorginho being outside. But I've been I've been saying this the whole season, in that you need to just put Jorginho outside and then put two players who can run, who can cover the distance. Because as a six, because essentially that you're playing double six, as a double six, you're playing again, you most of the time you're going to play against three midfielders. That Ngolo was playing for two players there. That's why he didn't, we didn't look outnumbered at any point in time. So when you play Jorginho, essentially you need to have a third person there to help him because he can't run and he plays side to side. It took me about 45 seconds to realize that today we're going to be fluid in the midfield because Kante and Kovacic, they cover the distance. They move around. They play one-twos. Ngolo was dropping the shoulder. It, it looked like a spectacle. I was like, oh, man is turning into prime Kevin De Bruyne out here. Dropping the shoulder, playing passes in behind a wing back, Passes in behind Trent. Things looked wonderful today. Like, I was very impressed with that. Something that Jorginho doesn't offer to us, and I've been very critical of that, in that even if he does play that forward pass, he won't be able to cover the distance or press the player just in case we make a mistake or things like that. So that's why I feel like yeah, I do agree with you. He does hold us back there. But then also today it was just maybe also it's just the spirit of the game just spoke to the players, you know. Probably just spoke to the players. Uh, Mr. Masanga, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you could agree with me. Maybe you could disagree with me. Today, something was just happening that me feels like they were possessed or something. For mind you, these are players that we're hearing are, are half fit, but they're playing like it's match day three. Yeah, I I definitely agree. They, I think, yeah, they were possessed. They did play with a lot of fluidity. And for me, the interesting part was the positions they were picking up. <clears throat> And it was the key difference. You know, you could see it almost immediately um, after Jorginho came on. When Jorginho received a pass from his, his center backs, he, he, he walked. He'd, he'd take five steps forward and sit there the entire time Chelsea was attacking. And if Chelsea were defending, he'd move five steps back. That's all he was doing, right? He There's like a small like patch of grass he he inhabits every game and he doesn't step out of it ever but the difference between him and Kovacic these guys are everywhere N'Golo you would see him on the left wing you'd see him left center back you'd see him all over the pitch same with Kovacic they're, they're covering all the half spaces they're getting into the wing positions they're interchanging with the attacking midfielders and the and the wing backs and that 
helps you out a lot because when you're playing a back three, you can be very limited uh, in attack, especially, you know, especially if you're playing without your star striker, you know, you, because that's one thing having a player like Lukaku does, you know, he bails you out. Are you stuck on the wing? Just, just, just throw in a cross. He's going to attack it. And a lot of, a lot of teams do that. A lot of teams with big strikers do that. It, it kind of bails you out. Even if he doesn't, you know, score, you get a knockdown, you get another opportunity that way. When you don't have that, you have to be very precise with your attacks, right? And you saw that with Liverpool. They had to get Mane and Salah on the ball in those half spaces on the wing. They had to get Jota on the ball. That's how they, you know, that's how they attack. Same with Chelsea. They had to get N'Golo and Kovacic in those half spaces, get Mason, get Pulisic in those half spaces, running at people, making through balls. When Jorginho came on, that was not happening, okay? When he came on, I thought Chelsea were just in full-on defensive mode. In fact, I hadn't seen them defend like that the entire game. They were pressing for the entire game until he came on. When he came on, it was literally six, seven men behind the ball, you know, just fighting for their lives until they get a chance to counter. And I think that's the, you know, that's the difference, you know, when you have Jorginho on the pitch. I would like to see Jorginho less on the pitch, you know, for Chelsea's sake, because I think their football is much more exciting uh, when they have dynamic midfielders. They create a lot more, um, and it's just more fun to watch. And I would definitely think, you know, the occasion today definitely had something to do with it. But I think, you know, just overall, this Chelsea team makes more sense without Jorginho in it. I think even Alonso could, you know, I know because he's very critical of Alonso, even Alonso could thrive without Jorginho in this team. But yeah, that's that's just what I think. Any other words on the Chelsea game from you guys? Nah, it's just just a marvel, man. Uh, to all the people that watched it, I think they can agree with me. No, that game was very, very, very good. Uh, I think, as I as I said at the beginning of my segment, uh, well, great advertisement for the EPL. As much as like we've had all this drama with the Chelsea game, there was the small matter of the league leaders playing, let's say, the pretenders uh, on Saturday morning and. I don't know, like, this just seemed like the weekend that had the big games, you know, Man City, Arsenal, Red Cards, uh, VAR, controversy as always. Uh, Mr. Masanga, just take it away and just give us the lowdown. First of all, I'd like to say we were robbed, legitimately. Mutsa said they were robbed, you know, against Southampton. I mean, who cares? You know, that was 1-1. So, so Harry Kane was offside. You know, that's VAR. VAR said you're offside, you're offside, okay? That, that's clear cut. We got a man sent off, all right? For doing, I mean, he kicked a spot. You know, he kicked the floor, so he got a yellow card. What, what is that? I've never seen that yellow card in my life, okay? That's ridiculous, okay? That's madness that that actually happened. And another thing, we were denied a clear penalty, the penalty Man City were okay. Let me let me start from the top, okay? Man City won the game two goals to one. Arsenal started off strong. We're creating chances left and right. We didn't take all of them. Martinelli missed a, a couple chances, which he should have scored. I think Saka missed another chance he should have scored, even though he ended up scoring one. We were on top of the game. We had them by the throat. First half, we had a penalty that was not given. 
and we were cool with it. We were fine. We did not complain. We moved on with the game. We scored. We went into the half, one goal up. When we came back out, Man City, in our box, right? They get a penalty. And no one thought it was a penalty, all right? The game had moved on, okay? Val was checking it in the background, but the game had moved on. And they called the ref to view the replay, you know, on the little VAR box, you know, on the side. They called him to view it, and he gave it then. And the thing that Arsenal fans were complaining about on social media afterwards was, why in the hell on God's green earth was, was the ref not asked to look at the first one, okay? Was the first one just not... Was it not exciting enough? Was it not good enough? Was there not enough contact? Because there was the exact same amount of contact, okay, in both. Both of them were questionable at both at, at best. If the ref looks at both, he's not giving any of them. He had to have a second look at, at both penalties to even consider them, all right? But my question is, why do we have to look at one and we can ignore the other? Even though they, they look the same on the replay. That's my biggest gripe about this, you know, is that we were denied a clear penalty. And if we get that penalty early on, that's 2-0 up, okay? Plus, the only reason Gabriel got the first yellow is because he kicked the spot right before the penalty, which was never supposed to be given, okay? So my thing is, it's either you give both pens or you don't give any of them. And if the pens don't happen, the red card doesn't happen. We don't play with 10 men. We don't lose the game. And that really, you know, I think that game really had me heated because I just felt like I don't know how Man City got away with it. It just, it didn't make any sense how they got away with that because we were on top of them the entire game. I mean, until we got the red card, but we were on top of them, okay? And we had them. And this is Arsenal. And of course, he called us the pretenders. We were not pretending for 45 minutes. We were on their necks for 45 minutes. This is Man City. This is the best team in the land. But we had them for 45 minutes and they could not do a damn thing about it until they got their pen. And that is ridiculous to me, okay? It's just madness. Anyways, Mutsa, I know you have something to say. So, yeah, just just go ahead. I, I can't. I can't anymore. <laughs> you know, that game. But also, Samson, I have to say, Gabriel, that was, to me, that was just pure stupidity. It was not just kicking a spot. He was scuffing the penalty spot so that, you know, it's like jagged grass so that if whoever's taking that kick, ball, you know, Mares, if he kicks that ball, it's going to, you know, zoom, wiggle out. I don't know whatever it was going to be. And Ramsdale just, it'd be an easy save. So he, that was intentional. It wasn't just like kicking a spot. And then that second yellow card, I don't know what Gabriel is doing. To me, Arsenal sometimes just full of buffoonery. I don't know. Because Xhaka, for me, I don't know why y'all keep Xhaka in your team. Why is Xhaka an Arsenal player? He's always doing tomfoolery there. He's always just, just tomfoolery on the, on the pitch all the time. Yellow cards, misplaced tackles, penalties. He's, he tripped Silver and well, he grabbed his shirt and then tripped him. I think that was a click. I, to be honest, I didn't see the first incident, so... I can't really speak on it. But that second penalty, I think that silver was a... I think, I think that was a pen. But also, I understand you because the ref was very inconsistent during that game. I, I saw a clip where that Martinelli missed. I don't know why the ref decided to run to the box to look at the goal. You know, when um when that... When, when I think it was Laporte who headed back to... Edouard, uh, to um, 
the city goalie, Edison. And it was a misplaced header and it was going to be an own goal. And then it was, yeah, it was Ake. Sorry, not Laporte. But there was that, there was a head, you know, and it was going to be an own goal and Ake saved it off the goal, off the goal line. He just cleared that thing. And then Martinelli was supposed to score, but the ref, for some odd reason, I think he was feeling striky. He, he ran into the box and kind of impeded Martinelli a bit and Martinelli had to go all the way around him and try to shoot from there. So I think maybe that had an impact. If the ref had not run into the box, I think Martinelli was scoring that, hands down. So, you know, maybe that Arab money from Man City paid off the ref or it's, I don't know, he was just, he's still, still new to the game. He still needs some more experience, but I do understand some of the Arsenal gripe because there were a lot of inconsistencies. Every time a City player got on the ground, an Arsenal player got a card. Every time an Arsenal player got on the ground, it was just a warning look for a Man City player. So definitely inconsistencies. Nkosi, what, what do you think about that? Just looking at it just now from a holistic league perspective, these past two games that Man City have played, Brentford away, they won one zero on Wednesday, and this Arsenal game, uh, those two games that they've they've just played, is that not concerning to you guys that they're performing like this in terms of like they're getting the results, but the performances are not there? Doesn't that give a reflection on like what might happen down the road? Reflection is in they win the title because they're serving well. I'm I'm saying, in my opinion, if you perform like this, there's a possibility that this league title may not be over. I'm just saying. But I don't know. Isn't that the the goal though? Like, if a team has to scrape, like you know, scrap for a win, like isn't that what champions are made out of? Like in those really really hard games, you just need to come out on top. I think isn't that what what needs to happen for you to like you know if they if they really dig in and win this time because Arsenal really had them pressed for a good 60 minutes. They were struggling, you know. So, and they came out on top still. And I don't know, for, for me, it's like, which other team now is going to to really press City? Unless, for some odd reason, things are going wrong. But that could be my own opinion. Also, as a Tottenham fan, how can I not be happy to see Arsenal lose, you know, to such to such things? You know, it makes me very happy. It brings a smile on my face. I love to see Arsenal get chopped off the block. But, um... Those are my own personal feelings. <laughs> uh, Samson, what do you think? I mean, I, I, I don't think Man City will drop off too much, um, just because you know it's 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 a ten point gap. Obviously, I don't think the title race is over. Um, I don't think they've won it, you know, necessarily, because again, you know, they're gonna play. They have EFL quarterfinals this month, I believe. They have FA Cup games. Uh, they're in the Champions. Actually, are they in the AFL? They might not be in the AFL. I, I yeah, actually, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think they are. But they have FA Cup games coming in. Uh, you know, in the month, they will miss some players to Afcon. They do have Champions League games coming. You know, it's do are they going to miss any Afcon players? Mars, maybe. I don't know, but they might struggle. You know, it's. I you know I see what I see what you're saying. It, it's not it's not a done deal, but again you know it is Man City. They have more depth than most. They aren't dealing with major injuries right now. Their main thing is still they don't have a striker, but you know that hasn't bothered them too much. So it's really hard to say. You know it's it's hard to say you know where 
they're going to be performance-wise, save for the Chelsea game. I can definitely see them drawing that game or losing that game. But do we see them losing three in a row, four in a row? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't see that. Just because it's Man City and it's not, you know, Manchester United. It's not it's not Tottenham. <laughs> you know, they they have a bit more consistency. And again, people sleep on their defense. Their defense, like individually, those are pretty capable defenders. And I know Arsenal, we gave them a game, but when's the last time you guys seen Man City concede three goals or have three games conceding two goals each? You know, Liverpool have a defense that actually worries me. You know, we saw, I mean, Konate today, I mean, he could have given away like four more goals if you give him enough time. You know, if, if, if Chelsea were a bit more clinical. Chelsea has had problems defensively, you know. You have Arsenal ourselves. We we got a man sent off, right? Man U conceded six early in the year. Tottenham is only just finding their feet. So, yeah, I I you know to me they still seem the most consistent, you know, just overall. But I do see what you're saying. They I I do see some cracks, uh, especially. But also, I would also like to say on the flip side, even though they did have cracks. Can we also just take some time to acknowledge Arsenal? Because I think, uh, I know, of course, you said we're pretenders, but I think we can see the real strides Arsenal has been taking. Because a season ago, I don't think Arsenal would have dominated you know, 45 minutes against Man City at any point of the season. But this year we did. And barring that red card, I think we were probably going to dominate the game. So I think, yes, Man City are slipping, but you know what, Arsenal are playing really well right now. So, who knows? Yeah, it seems like the kids, they finally arrived. Uh, there was a lot of negativity at the beginning of the season with some of the dealings that Edu and Arteta were making. But yeah, I would certainly agree with you. Uh, the Arsenal youngsters, as they call themselves, are starting to come of age, you know. It's just it's just my, my, my biggest thing right now is that can they be consistent with this kind of performance? They, can they string a good five to six performances at that level against Brighton, West West Ham, uh, the, the other teams, Norwich, Newcastle, uh, Southampton, uh, just to be con- just to show that they are already there? Because the biggest thing with what differentiates the small teams and the big teams traditionally is that the big teams turn it on against the big six opposition and the smaller teams. I just want to see that from Arsenal on a consistent basis going forward. And if I can see that, I can be like, oh, actually, they're coming. They're looking, they're looking like a serious threat. It's just also my concern with the manager on like how we'll handle pressure, for example, if they're two points ahead and they're about to get to like game match week 37 to 38, and the team below them is about to catch them and take that Champions League spot from them, and how he'll handle that whole situation because he hasn't been there. So just handling that experience factor there is just going to be an, an, another thing to monitor from time to time. But all in all, like I, I could say, I could safely say I was proud of Arsenal. It's been a while since I've seen them play the way they played this past weekend. Uh, I'm very happy that as much as they lost, like that also just gives them a good reference going forward that if they can keep this up, they will do very well. 
so yeah i think i think uh to all the viewers listening out there i think that's that's been quite the show you know as a lot of things have been said and um we're just very happy about just continuing to witness what's happening in the epl and just continue supporting them uh they're they're always on our screens they're always supporting we're always supporting them and yeah just enjoy it uh mr mutza uh, well you can close it out and let them know <laughs> thank you mr ngome um yeah no very very interesting day today very good chats i think there was definitely a lot to talk about I'll give a brief shout out to also West Ham. I think West Ham are definitely going to run everybody else for top four. I think they are a team to definitely keep on the radar. They are Moise keeps doing his thing. So I think I think they also deserve a brief, a brief shot. But yeah, you know, it was a double game week, uh, in terms of just like brief FPL. So we have three more games uh to look forward to for on Tuesday. Uh, you know, three games to watch. I think maybe an interesting one would be the Everton Leicester City game, but maybe not. We'll see. But you know, and then you know, we have a little break. Closing off our podcast. Thank you, gentlemen, for an exciting and scintillating conversation today. I hope, as our viewers, you will appreciate. And if you have any thoughts, comments, please definitely reach out to us. Let us know. And with that said, enter the new year well. Catch us again next week with more hot takes on old things. Premier League, football, sport, and whatever's going in life. So stay merry out there, people. Peace.